we are in the uh, middle of the chapter called All That Is Conditioned, uh, chapter 4. And <clears throat> we just finished the quotation from the sutta called The Man from Atakanagara. In the following sutta, the Buddha goes into a little more detail concerning the essential unsatisfactory nature of all formations. He also, once again, points to the simple and direct recognition of that very unsatisfactoriness via the fact of impermanence as the key contemplative method for freeing the heart from bondage to the conditioned realm. So if you remember in that uh, sutta, Yesterday, there was this consider the, the uh, ongoing reflection. Um, this first jhana is conditioned and volitionally produced. Whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. So, also, um, it's worth re uh, noting that um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Dhammanupassana, is all built around that reflection on, on uh, Anicca. So, if you're familiar with the uh, the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. So the first foundation is uh, contemplation of the body, Kayanupasana. Second one is a contemplation of feeling, Vedanaanupasana. The third one is Chittanupasana, a contemplation of uh, mind states, moods, and such like. And the fourth one is Dhammanupasana. So Dhamma uh, is, uh, in that respect, is sometimes translated as mind objects, uh, Dhamma with a small d. And um, you, one can make a case for that, but uh, if you, particularly if you look at the way that the four foundations of mindfulness are represented in the um, Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness of breathing, then uh, which is very closely related to the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, then the uh, <coughs> it, and it goes through each of the aspects of the breath in terms of the four foundations. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is very much around the contemplation of the impermanent nature of uh, the breathing and the, the uh, contemplating uh, anicca uh, based on the, the changingness of the, of the breath. And that uh, it's very much a, a basis for the development of, of insight, uh, and very specifically so. So my, uh, my reading of the fourth foundation of mindfulness is more... Is, Dhammanupasana with a capital D rather than a small d. It's like seeing things in terms of Dhamma, seeing things with, with um, that uh, eye of, uh, of reflection, of, of wisdom. And uh, in Larry Rosenberg's very good book about uh, the Anapanasati Sutta, which I mentioned the other day, <coughs> he has this, it's divided into four sections, breathing with the body, breathing with feelings, breathing with the mind, and breathing with wisdom. So that sort of sums it up fairly neatly. Um, so this uh, this aspect of, of bringing in reflection that uh, this is um, dependent, conditionally produced, uh, and whatever is dependent, conditionally produced is subject to change. That is the development of the of the fourth satipatthana. It's like that bringing that in. Oh, this is changing. This is coming to being. It's not stable. That and so that that is a, a very um, sort of specific instance of using that that fourth foundation, the Dhammanupassana, to trigger the, the insight, and as he says over and over, then that leads to the ending of the outflows. 
So, uh, I'll read this um, chapter. I also take note of trying to read a bit more slowly. <laughs> Not easy. I, I'm a quick kind of a bloke. So, uh, and it's even worse when I'm chanting. I think I'm chanting at a at a very. If I'm doing a solo chanting, uh, I, I think I'm chanting at a, 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 a very audible, steady speed. And and from the outside, people go, "Oh, you're going so fast. Why so quick, Ajahn?" So, so I do apologize if. Uh, it speeds up, but I'm, I you know, try to be as slow and steady as is um, practical and possible. <laughs> so this sutta is uh, uh, from the Sangyutta Nikaya, <coughs> and um, this is from section 22. So this is uh, the um, the Kandavaga, the the connected discourses about the the five Kandas and. Uh, so that the, this is all of the, the teachings in that, that group. And this is Sutta number 81 from the Khandavaga. Then Venerable Ananda, together with a group of bhikkhus, went to where the Blessed One was staying, in Padileka, at the root of the auspicious Sala tree. And on arrival, after bowing down to him, sat down to one side. As they were sitting there, the Blessed One instructed, urged, roused, and encouraged them with talk on the Dhamma. Then this thought arose in the mind of one of those monks. Now, I wonder, by knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? The Asava. The Blessed One, discerning the train of thought in the bhikkhu's mind, said to the bhikkhu's, I have analyzed and taught you the Dhamma, bhikkhus. I have analyzed and taught you the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four bases of success, the five faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the Noble Eightfold Path. So these are the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, or the, the, uh, the, the limbs of, uh, of, in, uh, of um, enlightenment. Or as uh, Ajahn Tanisro has it in the title of his book, The Wings to Awakening, that's uh, Bodhi Pakya Dhammas. So the Buddha says, I taught you all these, these um, different groups of teachings. And yet, there still appears this train of thought in the mind of one of the bhikkhus. Now I wonder, knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? So it's as if the Buddha is saying, um... <laughs> Good heavens, you know, I've, I've taught you so many ways already. How many other ways do you need me to explain? And not that the Buddha would think exactly in those terms. But it's, uh, it's somewhat like that. Yeah, I've already taught you these 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. <laughs> I've explained all of this. And still you're thinking, but what is the way to enlightenment, Ajahn? <clears throat> Any of you ever had that feeling? <clears throat> yes, and then the Buddha very politely and um, uh, realizes, okay, well, say it again. <laughs> and yet, still there appears this train of thought in the mind of one of the bhikkhus. Now, I wonder, knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows? So, by knowing in what way, seeing in what way, can one immediately put an end to the mental outflows. 
There is the case where an uninstructed ordinary person assumes the body and form, material form, to be self. That assumption is a formation. Now, what is the cause, what is the origination of that formation? From what is it born and produced? When an uninstructed ordinary person is touched by a feeling born of contact, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation is born of that. And that formation is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. Now, if you follow that uh, that logic, the, the reasoning there, or the, the description, so <clears throat> when you assume this body is me, it's mine. So if you there is the uh, an, an ordinary person assumes this body is self. I am this body. This body is mine. That assumption is a formation. So not only is the body a formation. That assumption, I am the body. That assumption is a formation. That's something that's come into being. What's the cause of that formation? Uh, <clears throat> when there is a feeling born of contact, so the body has weight, there's a sensation of, of pressure on the, on the chair, the feeling of cloth on the skin, feeling born of contact, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation is born of that. So this is, a, in a way, a little sort of snapshot of dependent origination. This contact influenced by ignorance. So that there's the avijja at the beginning. Then you have the body-mind set up. Sense contact, pasa, that leads to feeling. Feeling leads to craving. And because of that, there's this, I am sitting here. This is my body. I feel my weight on the chair. I feel the cloth on my skin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Am I going slow enough? What's the Not seeing, this means not seeing clearly. Not seeing Not, yeah, not being totally enlightened. <laughs> it's a pretty safe bet. Avijja is the last of the ten fetters. Ignorance. It's not referred to a specific type of ignorance. Just not seeing clearly. Any kind of like I haven't got my glasses on, so you're a little bit kind of furry around the edges. I'm not seeing clearly. Not furry, fuzzy. <laughs> fuzzy, well, a bit furry as well. Okay. So that formation is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. That craving, that feeling, that contact, that ignorance is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. It is by knowing and seeing in this way that one can immediately put an end to the mental outflows. Or, they do not assume the body and form to be the self, but they assume the self possesses form. So that then, <coughs> there, so that then it goes through uh, that set, uh, a very similar set of ways of relating to the, um, the five khandhas as there was in the that discourse of the Buddha to Anuradha that um, I quoted the other day. They're, they're, all, they're all in the same section of the connected discourses. They're all in the, the Khandavaga, the, the connected discourses about the five Khandas. So this is uh, very similar to that, the, <coughs> this way of so the, the mind conceiving a self in relationship to the five Khandas. Um, 
So it goes through this little sequence, and this is abbreviated, so there's, there's bits left out. They do not assume the body and form to be the self, but they assume the self possesses form, like the self owns the body, or that form as in the self, that the, the body uh, and uh, a material form is in the real, the real me, or self as in form, or feeling to be the self, or the self as possessing feeling, as feeling as in the self, or the self uh, as in feeling, or perception to be the self, the self as possessing perception, the perception as in the self, the self as in perception, or formations to be the self, the self as possessing formations, as formations in the self, self as in formations, or consciousness to be the self, the self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in the self, or self as in consciousness. So all those different dimensions of ways of of creating the feeling of there is a self that is existing in relationship to uh, one or all of the five khandhas. Then it carries on with that same refrain. Now that assumption is a formation. What is the cause of that formation? When an uninstructed ordinary person is touched by a feeling born of contact, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation, that assumption, is born of that. And that formation is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. That craving, that feeling, that contact, that ignorance is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. It is by knowing and seeing in this way that one can immediately put an end to the mental outflows. So that's, uh, uh, again, it's referring back to that, how that I feeling forms. And that, 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 that assumption is what's been formed like, I am the body, I am experiencing, uh, I am the owner of consciousness, or that, <coughs> the, the, and any of those other configurations, that uh, that assumption is what's being talked about, and the assumption is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Or they may have a view such as this. This self is the same as the universe. Thus, after death, I will be constant, lasting, eternal, not subject to change. This eternalist view is a formation. Or they may have a view such as this. I might not be, and neither might there be what is mine. I will not be, neither will there be what is mine. This annihilationist view is also a formation. Or they may be perplexed, doubtful and indecisive with regard to the true Dhamma. That perplexity, doubtfulness and indecisiveness is a formation. So even the thought, I don't know what the heck's going on. Uh, am, I, am I here? Am I, am I not here? Is this the self experiencing the not-self, or the not-self experiencing the self? Uh, what's happening? I don't understand this. That feeling of, I don't understand this, is also arisen, dependently produced, and impermanent. So it's like taking that, that the, the wisdom position, as it were. And that's exactly how a Lumpur Sumedha would often and speak about meditating on doubt, and even though the doubt says, I've got to know, I've got to know, I, I really need to know, that thought, I need to know, arises and passes away. It tells you that there's an answer missing, that you're incomplete until you get the answer. But actually, there's nothing missing. The doubt is saying, I need my answer to be complete. 
but that is just a thought that it arises and, and says its thing and passes away. So it's actually dece- it's, it's a deception. It's saying, I am incomplete, but it arises, I am incomplete, passes away. <laughs> so it is a complete thing in and of itself. You follow that? That makes sense? So that uh, is a brilliant way of, of um, dealing with doubt. And, and it really annoys the doubting mind. Say, you can't wriggle out of it like that. <laughs> this is a serious problem and you've got to worry about it. You know, I need an answer. So thank you very much. This, this, is the, this is a serious problem and I need an answer. Arising, saying its thing, passing away. That too is an impermanent, dependently conditioned thing. So that perplexity, doubtfulness, and indecisiveness is a formation. Now what is the cause, what is the origination of that formation? From what is it born and produced? When an uninstructed ordinary person is touched by a feeling born of contact, accompanied by ignorance, craving arises. That formation is born of that. So that formation, bhikkhus, is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. That craving, that feeling, that contact, that ignorance... Uh, these are all impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen. <coughs> when one knows and sees thus, the mental outflows are immediately brought to an end. So this is a, a, a kind of, uh, it's also um, a, 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 an extraordinarily thorough and multifaceted teaching. And, and it's kind of, it's in a sort of subtle vein of Pali humor, where the Buddha is sort of slightly exasperated, like, I've just been explaining to you that the four foundations of mindfulness, the four noble truths, the four right efforts, the five, fa- the five faculties, the five powers, seven factors of enlightenment, and the eightfold path, and still you're asking how do you end the outflows. <sighs> okay, you want to know? Right. And then he does this massively comprehensive um, uh, discourse, and it's uh, uh, and covering every single aspect of... of um, that saying, you know, all of the different ways that the feeling of, you know, I, uh, can, uh, the feeling of self can arise in relationship to the five khandhas, in relationship to these philosoph- philosophical and speculative views, you know, that all of that, whatever arises, is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. And that when that is, uh, <clears throat> when that, those assumptions are known to be uh, just that, then. When one knows and sees thus, the mental outflows are immediately brought to an end. And I don't know whether it says whether there was any of the venerables gathered there that reached Arahantship at that point. <laughs> I didn't check that up in, the, in my research. Another key passage from the Pali Canon which relates to this issue is found in the rich and colorful Datu Vibhanga Sutta. So the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, that's the exposition of the elements. That's uh, Majima uh, Nikaya Sutta number 140. And this is a, a discourse that's based around the Buddha's encounter with somebody called uh, uh, Pukusati. And uh, he's another one of these uh, um, wanderers who gets knocked down and killed by a cow, like Bahia. There's four of them all together. And you, th- you might think this is turning into a, not a shaggy dog story, but a kind of a, a wild, uh, a murderous cow story. But, uh, they, there's... Um, there was four of them. There was Bahia, uh, there was uh, Pukusati, there was um, Tamba Datika and Supabuddha. And uh, they, all four of them had um, 
in a, the story goes that in a previous life that they had been four um, four uh, young men taking a, a courtesan out for a picnic, and uh, they decided to to rob her. She had lots of golden jewelry, and they, they robbed her and killed her and stole her jewelry. And so that it was said in many many lifetimes, then she came back and and um, was uh, attacking them in various different ways out of understandable resentment about having been robbed and killed by them, and so that. Uh, 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 apparently, this was the, the last um, lifetime where this was uh, this was this was happening, and that all four of them got uh, knocked down and uh, killed by this uh, this uh, cow. As she was, um, the um, the story goes in that way. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But certainly, these are also these are stories from the suttas rather than commentaries. So it's it's likely that they did all die by being knocked down by wild cows. Whether there was any particular past life experience I can't really say and it does there's no uh, unfortunately there's no mention about um, whether the uh, the uh, young woman who had been apparently reborn as this um, violent cow had uh, uh, also reached any kind of um, uh, spiritual resolution so that's noted in the past that the that people often ask well what happened to her Ajahn so unfortunately the canon and the commentaries are silent on that, as far as I as far as I know, but also this story of Fukusati. Uh, those of you who might have come across this book, the Pilgrim Carmenita, uh, that was uh, uh, a uh, a more modern story ba- uh, based around Buddha's teachings, and the, the author took this encounter between the Buddha and Fukusati as the sort of core of, of that that tale. And the the in, the interesting thing about it is that. Um, the uh, the Buddha has been wandering by himself through the countryside, and uh, he doesn't ha- have a place to stay. So he uh, he asks um, he stops at a potter's house and asks if he can use this um, as some shelter at the at the pottery to stay in for the night. And then the potter says, uh, "Well, uh, I have uh, I've got a, a little room in the, uh, by the firehouse, but there's already another wanderer staying there. So if you don't mind sharing with him, then you're more than welcome to use uh, the, my place." And so then the Buddha says, well, "Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that." And so then he goes in and he and he meets uh, Pukusati, who's a wanderer. And it turns out that Pukusati has heard of the Buddha's teaching and has gone forth as a, a wanderer out of faith in the Buddha, but he's never met him, so he doesn't realize he's now sharing a room with the Buddha. And so that that's this, you know, this very unusual encounter. They're sort of sitting there in the in the little fire chamber, and uh, <coughs> the um, uh, so then the um, the Buddha uh, engages in conversation with him, and in the story of Pukusati, then uh, Pukusati says, "Oh well, uh, please, uh, venerable sir, tell me what uh, what you are, uh, what's your practice and what do you understand?" And he's, the, he's already told the Buddha, "I've gone forth out of faith in the Samana Gotama," and so the Buddha doesn't say, "Well, actually, that's me." He just starts talking, and then it, in the Sutta, what happens is about halfway through the discourse, as the Buddha is going into this very detailed and, and refined description of the um, of reflecting on the elements, then Fukusati realizes, aha, I think I know who I'm sharing a room with. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one person who could have this, this refinement of wisdom and this kind of clarity. And so he uh, sort of hits the floor and says, please excuse me, because I, I addressed you as friend, and, uh, you, know, and uh, you must be the, 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 the blessed man himself. And the Buddha said, well, that's all right. It's all right, uh, friend. You you uh, you did use that that form of address, but that was out of innocence. You weren't trying to be rude.
uh, in the the Pilgrim Kamanita, um, it doesn't go that way. The author takes a few liberties, and uh, the um, that the, she's changed. He's changed the name so that the the name of the wanderer sharing the room with the Buddha is called Kamanita, and he takes exception to the Buddha's teaching and is convinced that he's wrong, and and also he's gone forth out of faith in the Buddha. And but he he continues arguing with him, saying, No, 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 that couldn't be the Buddha's teaching. You're, you're foolish. You're 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 all wrong. Your views are really negative and nihilistic, and you know, the master would never teach like that. And so um, they uh, uh, in the in the story, which I, I know very well because I I edited it uh, and made a whole sort of, um, updated version of it, so it's familiar territory for me. <laughs> that uh, the Karmanita takes exception to the Buddha's teaching and and, go, and, and uh, never agrees with him, and the Buddha never tells him. Well, actually. <laughs> Uh, you, you do realize who you're sharing a room with. So the Buddha never says that. He lets he allows Kamanita to misunderstand him or miss or not know who he is, and that's not unprecedented. You do there are certain occasions where the Buddha allows himself to be misunderstood, quite consciously allows himself to be misunderstood. There's a few times when that uh, he very deliberately lets that happen, and so in Kamanita that's what happens. In the Sutta it doesn't happen that way. Anyhow. So uh, and, uh, and Pukusati, uh, so Bahia became an arahant before he was knocked down and killed by the cow. And um, Pukusati, uh, he became an anagami, a non-returner, and he was um, after he died. Then he was spontaneously born in the Aviha Brahma realm and became an arahant at birth. So that's a very popular destination. So, <laughs> so there are different kinds of anagamis. And uh, so some of them, even after being uh, in the in the um, in the Sudavasa, in the pure abodes, then it can take a long time before they reach arahantship. But the the kind of top grade uh, anagamis, they they appear in the uh, in the uh, in the pure abodes, in the, and uh, they are, they become an arahant at birth, and they live a really really long time. So that's become a very popular kind of spiritual destination. And my pet theory is that's the basis of pure land Buddhism. Sudavasa means the pure abodes or the pure land. So that uh, um, the idea of of being reborn in these really really nice Brahma worlds and staying there for a really long time uh, while you're while you're totally enlightened, it's like yeah, that'd be really nice. Before kind of hopping off the wheel altogether, you get a really kind of long retirement in this really nice retirement home. Several. Uh, Thousands of eons. So that's maybe uh, cheapening it a bit, but um, the, the mentality behind that is, I think, is just about like that. Anyway, going back to uh, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. <coughs> this is the Buddha speaking to Pukusati. Suppose, Bhikkhu, a skilled goldsmith or his apprentice were to prepare a furnace Heat up the crucible, that's like the little dish with the thick walls that you melt the gold in. Put it in, uh, put it into the crucible. So take up the, heat up the crucible. Take some gold with tongs and put it into the crucible. From time to time he would blow on it. From time to time he would sprinkle water over it. And from time to time he would just look on. That gold would become refined, well refined completely refined, faultless, rid of dross, that's like imperfections, malleable, wieldy and radiant. Then whatever kind of ornament 
he wished to make from it, whether a golden chain, or earrings, or a necklace, or a golden garland, it would serve his purpose. So too, Bhikkhu. There then remains, in the mind of the meditator, only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy and radiant. He understands, thus, If I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite space, and to develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mine, supported by that base, clinging to it, would remain for a very long time. If I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite consciousness, to the base of nothingness, to the base of neither perception nor non-perception, and develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mine, supported by that base, clinging to it, would remain for a very long time. He understands thus, if I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite space and to develop my mind accordingly, that would be conditioned. If I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to the base of infinite consciousness, to the base of nothingness, to the base of neither perception nor non-perception, and to develop my mind accordingly, that would be conditioned. He does not form any attitude or generate any intention tending towards either being or non-being. Since he does not form any attitude or generate any intention tending towards either being or non-being, he does not cling to anything in, in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. He understands thus, Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. That passage starts off with this imagery of the, golds, uh, the goldsmith refining the gold, and then this, uh, that's being used as a, an analogy for refining the quality of um, uh, concentration, and the, particularly the development of, of equanimity. Um, as uh, the end result of the, the uh, absorptions. But as he says, so too, Bhikkhu, there remains uh, in the mind of the meditator only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy and radiant. So he's equating the purified gold, that you can make anything that you like out of that gold, with uh, you, can, you can use that equanimity, that's pure and bright, malleable, wieldy, radiant. You can use it to, um, uh, say, uh, uh, say, absorb into any of these uh, 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 in these bases of uh, of the arupa uh, dimensions infinite space infinite consciousness nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception so just like you can take melted gold and you can make it into any of these different forms you can you can uh, so too direct the mind to be, uh, be absorbed absorbed into any of those um, refined realms but uh, each of those realms, uh, even though they're so refined, and, and incidentally, those um, are uh, are related to the so higher Brahma realms as well, the Arupa uh, Arupaloka, the formless Brahma realms. Uh, <coughs> so those uh, that would still be conditioned. If I were to direct this equanimity, so purified and bright, to that base and develop the mind accordingly, that would be conditioned. So then the, the, this teaching then hinges upon recognizing that 
He does not form any attitude or generate any intention tending towards either being or non-being. And that also reflects the insight that the Buddha had right after his uh, enlightenment and that you have uh, as quoted in the uh, Udana where um, he, he's uh, reflecting about that the, the insight that he's had and also um, uh, what he is going to have to convey to help other, other beings to, to be similarly liberated. He uses this phrase, abandoning clinging to being without relishing non-being. Abandoning the craving for being without relishing non-being. And that, uh, so that's a, a, so that letting go of the desire to be something, but without creating the, the desire to be nothing. <laughs> and so that's a, it's a, a, a very, um, uh, I think a, a clear, but also a, a subtle uh, expression of the middle way. Abandoning craving for being without, without uh, craving for, without relishing non-being. So it's uh, the middle way of of, of uh, awakening that's not, uh, that's not attached either to being or non-being. And then you have this this little succession uh, of the qualities or this little um, description of uh, of spiritual completion that he has at the end here, which appears a few places in the suttas. <clears throat> Since he does not form any attitude or generate any intention tending towards either being or non-being, so like the mind uh, awake to the, the middle way, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. He understands thus, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. And that agitation there, that agitation is not a kind of um, squirming on your meditation cushion, <laughs> but rather any kind of uh, agitation. That The ninth of the ten fetters of the Samyojana is udacha, which is also translated as rest restlessness. And again, it's not a sort of uh, needing to get up and go for a walk or having a, a sore knee on your meditation cushion, but it's a, a subtle kind of spiritual restlessness an agitation, uh, how, I, how I understand it, uh, is that it, it's that sense that uh, a restlessness that something over there could be better or more real than this. That there's a that that's more interesting, more valid, more real than, than this. And so that, um, is the sort of that, that, that agitation is um, the mind not completely as, uh, uh, awake to the... Uh, the Dhamma that's here and now, that is timeless, Sanditiko Akaliko, but rather, oh, over there, in, in a moment, it's going to be better, or <laughs> this isn't quite it, but that is, and that uh, wanting to get you know, past this to get to that, and so that that's the agitation that is that is dropped at this very um, final uh, uh, sort of uh, phase of, of spiritual uh, liberation, release. When he does not cling, he's not agitated. When he's not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, and so forth. So any questions or comments at that, this point? I quite like uh, this new definition of agitation. It's quite often we give it a very like, uh, not understanding agitation is like, I'm subtle and I physically I need to do something. 
but it's a to apply this standard like uh, uh, like uh, in order to prevent to be agitated then my mind shouldn't develop any plan for future then how do I think this life for example I'm the head cook tomorrow for example and if my step to do the work. <laughs> no, that, that would be a wrong understanding. No, it, uh, you can be mindfully aware of plans, and you know that your name is on the board. You can uh, be mindfully aware of the ingredients that, that uh, you're looking forward to working with, but you're also fully aware that it's not tomorrow morning. It's still this evening. <laughs> so that... Uh, uh, the easiest way of thinking of it is it's totally appropriate to make plans, but make them in pencil rather than ink so that you are prepared to rub them out and rewrite them if, uh, if you need. So that uh, <coughs> that's uh, it's not a foolish kind of uh, abandoning of past and future, but uh, rather a... Uh, and like to say, the Buddha was fully awake to the here and now, but didn't mean he didn't walk anywhere. He spent a lot of time you know, walking from Pataliputta to Saketa, or from from Varanasi to uh, <coughs> to, uh, uh, to Rajagaha. You know, that, so he's he's heading in a particular direction. He's got a goal of mind, you know, walking to Rajagaha, or walking to Savati. So that there's a plan, but he's also ready to um, change direction if need be. Like, uh, the, uh, one of the instances where he let himself be misunderstood was exactly that. So he was walking through the countryside with an attendant monk and they came to this fork in the road and uh, they were on their way to Rajagaha and they came to this fork in the road and the Buddha went to the, to the right and um, his attendant monk said, Honorable Sir, um, excuse me, but this is the road to Rajagaha, to, to the left. And the, the, the Buddha said, this is the road to Rajagaha. And then the monk said, excuse me, Venerable Sir, but this, the, the road to the left, this is the road to Rajagaha. You're not that one. The Buddha said, this is the road to Rajagaha. And so, of course, they do it three times over, as they always do. And after the third time that the Buddha said, this is the road to Rajagaha, then the, his attendant monk said, well... Uh, Venerable Sir, it's it's up to you. If you want to go that way, then you can. But I'm going I'm going to Rajagaha. I'm going this way. And he and he had the Buddha's bowl and and um, his the and his gear and sort of put it down on the ground. And said okay, and walked off by himself, which is a pretty outrageous thing to do if you're the Buddha's attendant. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it might have been me who did that. But so being cleverer than the Buddha, saying well, he doesn't he, he should know. He's supposed to be a Samasam Buddha, but for some reason, he's got this one wrong. And then what happened is that the that monk goes down that the the, uh, the left hand road and gets attacked by robbers. So the Buddha didn't say to him, um, "The reason why I'm saying that's not the road to Rajagaha is because there's some bandits down there that are going to attack us." Um, he just let him go down that way, so he got attacked by the bandits, got beaten up, and then and found his way back to the the Buddha on the other road. <laughs> Ask for forgiveness. So the Buddha quite consciously let himself be misunderstood in order to teach that monk a lesson. So maybe it might have been Janine's girl. Got any scars? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
<laughs> so uh, that uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the the Buddha has definitely got a sense of direction, and he's he's uh, following an intention. But also, he reckon recognized today we there's a different road to get to Rajagaha. So when you're planning your your menus and your your head cooking things tomorrow, okay, I've got a plan. It might change. <laughs> And if you're, if the mind is awake, then there's the capacity to to adapt. If the mind is not awake, then it's like, no, it's got to be this way. It's like, well, I'm terribly sorry, Linshi, but uh, they used up all the flour yesterday. Well, I'm I'm still going to bake, whether there's any flour or not. I don't care. It's like, well, there's no flour. Well, I've decided to bake, and it's on it's on the menu. So we we're baking. Well, okay. Uh, not sure how you're going to do that, but uh, since there actually isn't any flour, then you get suffering. <laughs> so I look forward to seeing what happens tomorrow, <laughs> if we're all still alive. Well, it's not tomorrow. It's actually next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could be we could be hit by a meteorite or have a whole. Have the whole sinkhole open up and swallow up Maravati completely by then. Since I was notified I'm going to be the head cook next Monday, I think the rest of the day I was thinking, oh, next dish, that dish. I think from the new definition I just received, I think I was very agitated today by having all these many running in my brain and thinking, what am I going to tell James to do? What am I going to tell Agnes to do? And it was like, but you can reflect. This agitation is conditioned and volitionally produced. It's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. Anyway, to continue. <clears throat> One of the messages that repeatedly comes through these teachings concerns the emotional results a fully comprehending conditioned reality. Again and again, it is the true seeing of instability, unsatisfactoriness, and the emptiness of all things that leads to disenchantment with and dispassion toward the realm of the senses, the thinking mind, and even to refined states of consciousness. With the enchantment broken, the attitude radically shifts and the heart changes. There's a natural turning away from the conditioned, the born and the dying. For many, it is this more emotive response to clearly seeing conditioned reality that provides the impetus to set it all down, thus leading to the possibility of realizing the unconditioned. <coughs> Reflecting on these limitations of conditionality is a recurrent theme in another of the highly significant suttas of the Majjhima Nikaya, the Panchataya Sutta, which means the five and the three. This discourse describes how the nature of experience is wisely analyzed in meditation in order to see, to see clearly and abandon all subtle and gross forms of clinging. The Buddha's description of tracking, quote, the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six bases of sense contact is a very pithy synopsis of the process of insight meditation. And so those uh, origination and disappearance, like the Samudaya and the Niroda, the arising and passing, 
Gratification is asada, Pali is asada. The, so that's the, yes, I like. Uh, so the pleasing quality of a sense experience is asada. And then the danger is also tra translated as the liability or the, um, uh, the, 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 the fault or the, um, the downside of things. The danger is adinava. Adinava. So there's a useful pair to remember, Asada and Adinava. They go they're they're a, they're a pair. <laughs> you don't get Asada without Adinava. You don't get the gratification without the liability. You don't get the only one side of the coin. So along with the, the gratification there's the danger. And then escape is <coughs> Nisarana. Nisarana. So uh, also liberation is another uh, uh, translation for that. So whether based on perceptions of form or of the formless, of the limited or, the, or of the immeasurable, some assert the base of nothingness, immeasurable and imperturbable, to be the self. However, all that is conditioned and thus gross. But there is the cessation of formations, Sankara Niroda. Having known there is this, and seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. This formula, that is, uh, this is conditioned and thus gross, um, is then repeated with respect to a wide variety of speculative views. Three more on the nature of the self after death, sixteen on the relationship of the self and the world, and a final four on the misapprehension of Nibbana here and now. All of these paragraphs conclude with the same refrain. All that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, and seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. The Buddha then concludes his discourse with the following words. Bhikkhus, this supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, that is, liberation through not clinging. By understanding as they actually are, the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape, in the case of the six bases of sense contact. <clears throat> so this is a very, uh, a very helpful sutta. When it, uh, and this phrase, sankara, uh, sankara niroda, the, um, the cessation of formations, uh, again, that's niroda as not necessarily as in a, a thing that has arisen uh, and then has, has a thing that has started and then and then stops, but it's. Uh, the niroda—it's also, um, or more, I feel accurately, uh, niroda, as in the um, the the checking of formations, or the the correct holding of formations, or the or not creating a problem with formations. As we were talking about that, the different nuances of the meaning of the word uh, cessation. So sankara niroda, in a way, it's that that uh, that aspect of mind which is not entangled with formations is probably a, a more helpful um, uh, way of, of figuring it as he says <clears throat> not uh, through not clinging liberation through not clinging so through the total non-attachment to formations uh, so there is that dimension of, of being or that attitude where the there is a, a complete awareness of formations but no entanglement or identification with them so that uh, is I feel a, 
it's it's that kind of a broader understanding of niroda in in this respect of when it says sankara niroda. I'll read a, a little bit of the um, the sutta as well because um, it's uh, it's a great meditation teaching this. And as I said, it goes into exhaustive detail, all these different things that the mind can attach to. And uh, it's Sutta number 102 uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, And uh, he gave it in uh, Savati, in in the Jeta Grove. And he's uh, talking about, starts off talking about speculative views about the past and then about the future and it goes through this uh, exhaustive detail about how the mind attaches to all of these things but then as it says it has that um, that reflection this is conditioned and thus gross but there is the cessation of formations so regardless of what the view is regardless of, of how refined it might be um, uh, similarly to that other uh, the, the there's this reflection this is conditioned it's gross it's it's coarse um, but there is the cessation of formations there is the that capacity to completely disentangle uh, and uh, to let go of all formations. And in this uh, last section of this, in uh, the misapprehending of Nibbana, this is a particularly interesting section, and it doesn't have a... There's not a lot of other places in the suttas where you get the same... um, the, the same kind of imagery. And in particular, I wanted to read this little passage which is uh, I've often quoted in, in Dhamma talks. So this is just close to the very, the very end of the sutta. Here, bhikkhus, some recluse <coughs> or Brahmin, so some meditator, some uh, somebody at the retreat center at Amravati, or somebody sitting in the temple at Amravati, some recluse or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of, of views about the past and the future, through complete lack of resolve upon the fetters of sensual pleasure, and with the surmounting of the rapture of seclusion, unworldly pleasure, and neither painful nor pleasant feeling, regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. So that's uh, someone's um, sitting in meditation, and the mind is is really uh, really clear, let go of all these views about the past and the future, is not caught up in sense desire, is um, say has not even caught up in the the um, the, the bliss of the uh, absorptions, um, not even uh, not even caught up in the neutral feeling uh, and uh, unworldly pleasure in equanimity and so forth. So then there's this this really peaceful, clear, totally um, beautiful state, and the mind forms this thought: I am at peace. I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. The Tathagata Bhikkhus understands this thus. This good recluse or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future and so forth, regards himself thus. I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. Certainly this venerable one asserts the way directed to Nibbana, yet this good recluse or Brahmin still clings clinging either to a view about the past or to a view about the future or to a fetter of sensual pleasure or to the rapture of seclusion or to unworldly pleasure or to neither painful nor pleasant feeling.
And when this Venerable One regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbāna, I am without clinging, that too is declared to be clinging on the part of this good recluse or Brahmin. That is conditioned and gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having understood there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathāgata has gone beyond that. So it's like that even when the mind forms that, I'm at peace, I'm without clinging, I've realized Nibbāna, that, that very I, I am, I have, that declares the clinging that is still there. It's like, duh! <laughs> the, that I am is telling you uh, that the, there is still clinging. Um, so that's a helpful uh, a helpful reflection. Uh, and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi even uh, emphasizes it by having the, the word I there in italics and underlined so that you, you get the emphasis. I am at peace. I am without clinging. I have realized Nibbana. That's the clue. If I have realized Nibbana, then it's like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. But also in this, um, uh, that gesture of, of letting go of, of non-clinging, of non-entanglement, so having understood there is this, it's like that's where the, the mind lets go of, of all things and is, is awake to uh, the conditioned, uh, sees there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond it, the awake mind goes beyond that. So this is a, it's a very helpful sutta, so 102 in the Majjhima. There's also a very interesting little passage in that which talks about attachment to uh, uh, attachment in terms of aversion as well as attachment in terms of of, uh, of desire, which again it's it's an image that you don't get that often in in the suttas. And it's he's talking about people uh, attached to uh, annihilationism, like people who say there's no past lives, no future lives, you just <coughs> die and that's it. So it's very common nowadays in the in the West. A lot of Buddhist annihilationists. So very. Uh, very uh, popular view. Um, anyway, says the Tathagata bhikkhus understands this thus: those good recluses and Brahmins who describe the annihilation, destruction, and extermination of an existing being at death, through fear of personality and disgust with personality, keep running and circling around that same personality. Just as a dog bound by a leash tied to a firm post or pillar keeps on running and circling around that same post or pillar, so too these good recluses and Brahmins, through fear of personality and disgust with personality, keep running and circling around that same personality. That is conditioned and gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. So that's a, a, a helpful image of because uh, sometimes people think that um, attachment means liking things, but even even uh, dislike, you know, you're still tied to the posts going around. Uh, uh, dislike is still a, a very definite kind of attachment. So just like the the dog, and the way I like to to um, sort of elaborate on that is that uh, whether whether it's attached attachment to something that you like, sort of going around the post one way, or attachment to something that you don't like, going around the post the other way, you're still attached to the to the post like the dog you know, tied to its to its lead. So any questions, thoughts, reflections?
So maybe just carry on a little bit more. So this is a um, uh, yeah. I'll just read to this this uh, uh, last section here. To follow on from this teaching, here is an example of an individual applying this skillful analysis to the realm of speculative views. There are, of course, many other areas where the habits of clinging can feed and flourish. For example, in the pursuit of sense pleasure, in attachment to societal and religious conventions, and, the most insidious and subtle of all, clinging to feelings of I, me and mine. What Anattapindika demonstrates here, and which Ajahn Chah explicates with great thoroughness in the passage following, is the fine art of employing a convention or a point of view, yet simultaneously and without hypocrisy, seeing it, the conventional the point of view, as dependently originated, empty of substance, and thus unknowable, like all other things. <clears throat> so this is... Um, uh, uh, a, a dialogue between Venerable Anna, uh, the um, not the not quite Venerable Anatapindika, <laughs> the Householder Anatapindika, and uh, some other wanderers. This is in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Tens. Then the Householder Anatapindika went to where some wanderers of other sects were staying. On arrival, he greeted them courteously, and after this exchange of friendly pleasantries, he sat down at one side. As he was sitting there, the wanderers said to him, Tell us, householder, what views the Samana Gautama has, the, the Buddha. Venerable sirs, I don't exactly know what views the Blessed One has. Well, well, so you don't exactly know what views the Samana Gautama has. Well, tell us then what views his monastic disciples have. Venerable sirs, I don't exactly know what views his monastic disciples have either. Well, well, so you don't exactly know what views the Samana Gotama has, and you don't exactly know what views his monastic disciples have either. Can you tell us then what views you have? It would not be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have, but if the venerable ones would first please expound their views, each according to their own perspective, then that would make it easier for me to expound to you what views I have. When this had been said, one of the wanderers stated to Anattapindika, The universe is eternal. Only this is true and everything else is wrong. This is the view I hold. Another wanderer stated to Anattapindika, The universe is not eternal. Only this is true. Everything else is wrong. This is the view I hold. Another wanderer stated, The universe is finite. Another one, The universe is infinite. The self and the body are the same. The self is one thing, and the body another. After death, a Tathagata exists. After death, a Tathagata does not exist. After death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. Only this is true. Everything else is wrong. This is the view I hold. So they each present their different... They seem to have one each. <laughs> I think that's probably just a... A device for the for the uh, the sutta, but uh, anyway, they all have different views, and they all have one each. When this had all been said, the householder Anattapindika said to the wanderers, 
As for the venerable, venerable one who says, the universe is eternal, only this is true, everything else is wrong, this is the view I hold, this view has arisen from his own unwise consideration, or in dependence on the words of another. Now this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, volitionally produced, and has originated dependent on causes. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, volitionally produced, and is dependently originated, that is transient and uncertain. And whatever is transient and uncertain is unsatisfactory. Thus this venerable one adheres to that which is intrinsically unsatisfactory. He commits himself to dissatisfaction. And Artipindika then proceeds to treat the rest of these ten classical philosophical positions in the same way. When this has been said, the wanderers said to the householder and Artipindika, We've all expounded our views, each according to our own perspective. Now tell us what views you hold. So Anatopindic has kind of demolished all of theirs with this uh, the, uh, his brutal logic. Then they say, well, what, well, what's your opinion then? You know, so they're kind of lining up to have a go at him. So then Anatopindica replies, Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, volitionally produced, and is dependently originated. That is transient and uncertain. And whatever is transient and uncertain is unsatisfactory. That which is unsatisfactory does not belong to me. It's not what I am. It is not myself. This is the view I hold. Householder, your belief that whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, volitionally produced, dependently originated, that is transient and uncertain, and whatever is transient and uncertain is unsatisfactory, is subject to the same logic. You follow? So they're saying... You know, they, they think they've caught him out. That is subject to the same logic. Thus, you too adhere to that which is in, intrinsically unsatisfactory. You too commit yourself to dissatisfaction. Ha! That's not there in the text. But it's, it's just sort of, you can feel it. It's an unspoken ha! Gotcha! Then, venerable, uh, the, the nearly venerable Anatopendika says, Venerable sirs, <coughs> Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, volitionally produced, and is dependently originated, that is transient and uncertain. And whatever is transient and uncertain is unsatisfactory. That which is unsatisfactory does not belong to me, is not what I am, it is not myself. Having understood this with true wisdom, as it actually is, I have also discerned the, the genuine means for transcendence of it. When this had been said, the wanderers became silent, dismayed, their shoulders drooping, and their heads sunk down on their chests, glum and with nothing to say. The householder Anatopindika, perceiving that the wanderers were silent, glum and with nothing to say, stood up and left that place. <laughs> <laughs> so there. So I'm sure that over the years, other logicians have uh, picked holes in, uh, in Anatopindika's argument, saying, ah, but he's at fault because he should have said this and he didn't say that. But uh, in terms of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, the sutta, and in terms of our practice, what is what is significant is that, and and what the way I was um, sort of introducing it is that that you can uh, you can use a view without attaching to it, without taking um, and saying only this is true, everything else is wrong, because that 
it's that attachment, it's the clinging to the view that is uh, that is the um, uh, the the damaging element. That's the thing that, that causes causes the dukkha. And so Anattapindika said, you know, this is the view I hold. That which is unsatisfactory does not belong to me. It's not what I am. It's not myself. This is the view I hold. So even though he says I hold it, it uh, it's like it doesn't belong to me. It's not what I am. It's not myself. <laughs> if you follow that, so uh, and similarly, and I, I as uh, the the last part of this chapter is this uh, long passage from from Lumpur Cha that I won't read today, but, uh, another tomorrow. Um, yeah, Lumpur Cha was was uh, similarly. He was uh, one of the most impressive things about him was that he was. Uh, an extremely orthodox monk. He was very conservative, and he kept all the rules very, very scrupulously, and everything was done in an extremely proper way. Um, but he was completely unattached to the same forms that he was very vigorously maintaining. <laughs> and so that it was this, 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 this strange mixture of both uh, him being totally sincere and committed as a, a Theravada monk, but also at the same time uh, he could quite happily sit up on the Dhamma seat and say, "There are there are no monks here. The Theravada Buddhism doesn't really exist. There are no men or women here." And he, uh, what? <laughs> and uh, so that he he was able to, in the same way, he could use views, but was not identified with them or limited by them. And it's still that created a structure of his life. You still got your menu of what's what's there. But also, if the mind is not attached to that or, or bound to it, it doesn't identify with it, then there's no suffering that arises from, from using those, those views. So that Anattapindika in that, in that sutta, he's saying, yeah, that, um, yeah, this is, this is the view that I hold, but uh, uh, there's not an identification with it. It's not, it's not something that is, that is owned or possessed. And it's, it's hard to express how that works. But uh, to me, that's how the the holy life is is lived most most successfully. Because if you're identified with uh, the forms and or the views, and you've got to defend, you know, what you know, you've got to defend Theravada against Mahayana, you've got to defend the uh, against the uh, uh, Ajamahabur or <laughs> you know, the the other lot, you know, that uh, Amravati against Chidhurst. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Amaravati. We're Amaravati Vardins, so not the kind of Chitaviveka Vardins. So. Then you just create suffering. But you can still live an Amaravati and be an Amaravati Vardin without clinging to it. And that uh, that is uh, really what's being um, expressed in this little discourse. So that's in the Book of the Tens in the Anguttara. So uh, it might take a, a couple of extra readings of that last passage of um, Anatta Bindika's presentation, but it. it uh, uh, it's a very, very significant point in terms of how to use uh, uh, forms, and it's like well, sila pata paramasa, the the attachment to rites and rituals and forms, is where there is that identification, that grasping, or I am a Theravadan, or you know, I, th- I this is right, and that is wrong. You know. uh, that the um, the way that one can use views, but then letting them be um, right views, as and as Lumpur Sumato in his his own spiritual genius, because there was once upon a time, <laughs> many years ago, there was a there was an anagarika in this community who was uh, very very sincere, and um, 
uh, very committed, very energetic, but he suffered immensely about how everyone else was doing it wrong. And when other Anagarikas or monks were lazy or the nuns were kind of had wrong views, he would get really upset and, and he was obsessed with the wrongness of, of everybody else. And, uh, and he would, uh, and so sometimes he, he would even sort of make a pronouncement in the sort of community meetings and point something out to somebody. And uh, so Lumpur Sumedho, in his um, in his brilliance, once summarized it. I think maybe Ajahn Zundra was there as well at the same time. He said that uh, right view, uh, righteous views are not the same as right view. <laughs> <laughs> righteous meaning like, let me tell you, that's righteousness. So it's not the same as right view. And it was a very, very succinct. I don't know if you remember that, Ajahn. <laughs> There's been a few of us over the years, yeah. But yeah, so that righteous views is not the same as right view, and so because you could you could hear what that that person was saying, and it's like yeah, that's true. Yeah, people shouldn't do that. They should put their shoes on the racks, and they should be they should be square. They shouldn't be sort of left on the on the floor, and they shouldn't be at weird angles. And people should do the washing up, you know, so that everything is finished properly and put away and dried. <laughs> and the tea towels should not be that they should be hung where they will dry properly and he said yeah that's right he's right but he was such a, a massive amount of suffering that because everyone was doing it wrong that he ended up couldn't just couldn't stay in the community because it was surrounded by wrongness all the time so i'm not if anyone thinks he's reading my mind <laughs> Well, he knows about that other Anagarika. So. Uh, I don't. It's just, this is history. But it's also how we work as human beings. So I'll leave it there for today.